Well, dear brothers and sisters, it's great to be with you this Lord's Day morning. And when I say with you, I mean with you in spirit, with you in prayer, with you in heart, and with you in mind. But during this coronavirus pandemic, obviously we're not together in body. We're not gathered together in the local church building, but we can still be gathered in prayer, gathered in heart, gathered in mind, gathered with one spirit and one purpose in Christ Jesus as a local church and as the church universal. So it's my blessing to bring the Word of God to bear this Lord's Day for the blessing of Christ's church and for the glory of our great God and King. Please open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. Matthew, chapter 10. The title of this morning's message is The Main Thing is Still the Main Thing in the Midst of Plague. The Main Thing is Still the Main Thing in the Midst of Plague. Hear me, brothers and sisters. Circumstances change. Wealth turns to poverty. Health turns to to ruin. Security turns to chaos. Safety turns to threat. Men turn to dust. Nations rise and nations fall. But the glory of God through the salvation of sinners is still and always will be the main thing. It is commonly and rightly reported among Christians that God reigns in the heavens and that plague in the earth is a judgment of God on sinful mankind. What are Christians to do in light of the judgment of God falling upon humanity? We are to keep the main thing the main thing and lift up the name and gospel of Jesus Christ in a dying world. Most of you know that 1 Timothy 1.15 is near and dear to my heart. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. This is a faithful saying. It's a universal saying. It is a universal Christian truth. It's a worldview defining truth. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus created the cosmos. He entered into his cosmos through the womb of the Virgin Mary in the form of sinless man. He suffered the fullness of the wrath of God, the Father, for sinners on the cross. He died. He paid the wage of sin, which is death, in full. He was buried. He rose again the third day, for death could not hold the author of life. He ascended on high. To sit at the right hand of the Father is the one mediator between God, holy, 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 and mankind, sinful. He rules there in heaven at the right hand of the Father over every star, over every planet, over every creature, over every sparrow, over every disease, over every atom, and over every son and daughter of Adam that he created for his own glory and his own image. He will soon return as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow to King Jesus. Every tongue will confess His Lordship. Those who confess Him as Lord in life 
will know forgiveness of sin and abundant life forever under the fullness of God's love and a new heaven and new earth in which only righteousness dwells and there is no more disease, no more death, no more pain, and no more tears. Those who continue in their rebellion against the Father and His anointed Son shall perish in their sins, shall die, shall bend their knee to Christ, shall confess Him as Lord, shall receive the due penalty of their sin, the wrath of the Lamb. Literal, conscious torment in hell where Revelation 14 tells us the smoke of their eternal torment will ascend before Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, forever. All to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I wrote the following Facebook post on March 13th. I wrote a similar email to the church the same day. I stand by that counsel. Quote, how should a Christian respond to COVID-19, to the coronavirus? Pray, read your Bible Do a reasonable amount of research on the virus. Subjugate your research findings and all rumors and news reports, especially those you get from the internet, beneath the truth of God's Word. Trust God, who holds the entire cosmos, all life in it, every sparrow, and your precious life in His hands. Take responsible precautions according to your own understanding circumstances, health, and conscience. Don't ridicule or anathematize people because they're more or less cautious than you are. Love your neighbors with action and truth. Remember, non-believers have every reason to be terrified. They are one heartbeat from eternity in hell. Proclaim the certain hope of the gospel. Use words. Use tracts. Use amplification if possible. Believe Jesus. Obey Jesus. Witness like Jesus. Last Sunday, Pastor John MacArthur preached an excellent message titled, The Promise of Peace in a Worried World. In his introduction, he said this, I remember being on the Larry King show after 9-11. And Larry King said to me, what is the lesson here? I said, the lesson is everybody's going to die. And you're not necessarily in control of when. The danger of death is around us. And what contributes to that death is both around us and even in us. Everyone dies. A hundred years from now, none of us will be around. That's inevitable. Life is the most comprehensive danger of all. No one escapes its inevitable end. But sometimes there are things that happen that frighten us beyond the normal sense of impending death. A billion people have died in wars. A billion. 60 million people a year die. 50 million of them die from heart disease. 10 million of them die from cancer. 15,000 children die every day. 4,000 people die every day from accidents on the highways. 50 million people died in the Spanish flu epidemic in 1918. But the greatest of all holocaust was the Black Death in the 1300s when 75 million people died. One can only imagine the terror that occupied the hearts of the people who were exposed to that. We can be thankful in the providence of God to be living in a time when that doesn't happen. 
And what we face now would be considered in comparison to that a very minor concern. And yet, because you have an entire world of people cut off from any eternal hope, everything becomes fearful to them. For those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, who have no true hope after death, it's reasonable to fear. It's reasonable to be concerned about death and because they face, as we know, divine judgment and eternal punishment. End quote. Toward the end of his message, Pastor MacArthur quoted Matthew 6, verse 34, which says, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what precious counsel, what vital counsel for this hour of plague, for this hour of disease, for this hour of pandemic and panic sweeping our nation and the globe. Pastor MacArthur followed his quote of Matthew 6.34 with this commentary. He said, worry is a powerful force. It can steal your joy. It can rob you of contentment. It can destroy your testimony with others. It can fill you with anxiety and fear. Even panic attacks are related to the kind of anxiety that fear produces and worry produces. There are some people so committed to the sin of worry that there's nothing in the present to worry about. They start looking into the future to find something. The Lord forbids that. Your future is in His hands. Your future is completely His. Back to verse 34, where we're looking now. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't push your fears into the future, Pastor MacArthur says. God will give you strength for every new day. His mercies are new every morning. To anticipate trouble is to double it without the grace to endure it. Because you're not there yet. You don't have the grace yet. To anticipate trouble is to double it when God will allow it only singly and provide you sufficient grace for it. Fear is a liar. Fear lies to you. Fear tells you your future is not under control. That's a lie. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. You've got enough trouble today. Deal with that. God will be there in the future. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't cripple the present by worrying about the future. You destroy your joy and you lose the present. So worry is a forbidden sin, incompatible with the fact that God is your Father. You're a member of His eternal family and your future is completely cared for. That makes worry stupid as well as sinful. Let the pagans worry. They have no protector. They have no promise. We are not spiritual orphans. We're not out floating around on our own. We're not spiritually homeless. We have a home. We have a father. We have all his resources and all his riches at his disposal to dispense with us. He loves us and cares for us. He meets every need we have. He asks, all he asks out of us is that we love him and obey him and serve him and not worry. Because worry declares that we don't trust him. We don't trust that he's aware when he is. We don't trust that he cares when he does. And we don't trust that he can do anything to protect us when he can. This is really a sin against the God who loves you. Unquote. The primary text of Scripture I want to focus on this morning is Matthew 10, verses 29 through 31. Matthew 10 
verses 29 through 31. It's the text I taught to my wife and children in my own home last Lord's Day morning. It's a text often ripped out of context. It's a text that pastors and Christians are using prolifically in light of the coronavirus. First, I'll read those three verses. Then I'll go back and read the larger context. Matthew 10, verses 29 through 31. Read with me there. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. What a precious text for God's saints. What a blessing and a joy for all those who know and love the one true God who rules in the heavens. A sweet promise, often given, often lifted up in hours of hardship, trial, persecution, and difficulty. A sweet promise of God's sovereign control over the seemingly inconsequential death of a sparrow. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? That speaks to the value of a sparrow. The value is small. Sparrows are not created in the image of God. Sparrows do not have an eternal soul. If you were to eat sparrows, it would take a great number of them to make a meal, and it would not be a meal worth remembering at that. And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. Our Father reigns in heaven and on earth. Our Father holds the life of every creature in his hand, even the life of a sparrow, sold two for one copper coin. Our Father's will reigns over life and death. Our Father's will reigns over your life, over your death. And your life will not end until the Father wills it. Your death will not come until the Father wills it. Conversely, your life will end exactly when the Father wills it. Death will come for you and swallow you up at that exact moment that God wills it. As Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. You will not cancel that appointment. Every man, every woman, every child has an appointment with death. For the wage of sin is death, and we will be paid our wage by a holy, omnipotent God, but not before the time that He will. And so, dear saints, this is meant to be a comfort to followers of Jesus Christ. This is meant to be an encouragement to followers of Jesus Christ. This is meant to buttress us against those things that we would fear taking our precious life from us and taking the lives of those who are precious to us. May God grant us faith to believe our Lord and Savior. May God grant us faith to receive His words and to believe His words that they would sink down into our hearts and not just be in our minds, not just flow through our ears, not just be read on the page before our eyes, but control the very center of our being. They would control our emotion, control how we respond to real threats in a real world with real disease and suffering, and death. 
Again, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. They're numbered by God. He's numbered them. And you'll not lose one of them except that he allow it. He knows you on that personal level and he knows you and cares for you on that personal level. He is that omniscient. He is that benevolent toward his followers and he's that omnipotent and sovereign and that he rules over every detail of your being, even every single hair on your head. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Verse 31, do not fear therefore. That's where this is all leading. Do not fear therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. You're of more value than many sparrows. You are created in the image of God. You are created for the glory of God. You have an eternal soul. And you who are in Christ have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb in order that you might serve Him and magnify Him and make His name great in the earth, in order that you might be messengers of His glorious gospel, that sinners might be saved and that He might be glorified in their redemption. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. It is no wonder that this text is offered to Christians in hours of duress, in hours of hardship, in hours of plague. It is no wonder that we see social media feeds filled with Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31. Comforting followers of Christ, comforting blood-bought Christians who are in the perfect, sovereign, loving care of their Father, encouraging them not to fear, therefore, reminding them that they're of more value than many sparrows and not a single sparrow falls to the ground except the Lord allows it. Reminding them that God loves them with a very specific and personal love to the point of knowing every single hair on their head. That they are not experiencing life in a chance universe. That they are not experiencing chance in their life but rather they're experiencing life as God has ordained it. Circumstances that God has ordained and that God rules in and rules over. As Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. This is our God. This is our Father. And we can trust our Father, with our lives, with the circumstances of our lives, with the very hairs on our heads and every other detail of our lives. What a precious promise. What a blessing and what a joy for Christians to know the love of their Father extends to such great detail and depths to know that the power, the omnipotent power of their Father will not leave them as orphans subject to wind and waves of chance. But Christian, I want to ask you, do you know the context of Matthew chapter 10, verses 
29 through 31. Do you know the context? Most of my Christian life, I've heard Matthew 10, 29 through 31 offered up as a comfort to Christians to encourage Christians in hours of hardship and hours of duress and in this hour to encourage them as they face a worldwide pandemic, a worldwide plague. But what is the context it's found in? I was blessed last Lord's Day to worship in my living room with my family, and to bring this truth to bear upon their hearts for their encouragement. Go back to Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, and let's work all the way down through verse 39. Now, I'm not going to have time to exposit this verse by verse to look at every detail, but we'll get the big picture of the context that verses 29 through 31 are found in. Matthew 10, verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father is child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will have not gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not Two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my father who is in heaven." Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Thus saith the Lord, dear saints. Thus saith the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus says the founder of Christianity. 
What is this? This is Christianity defined by Jesus Christ. It's the stuff that turned the whole world upside down in a generation. It's what Christ came to establish in your heart, in your city, and on his planet. This is biblical Christianity. Let's recap briefly. Matthew 10, verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come, suffer, and die, rise again on the third day, and ascend to sit at the right hand of the Almighty to give you your best life now. He came, He suffered, He died, He rose again, and He ascended to sit on high, and He called you to Himself. He has made you a trophy of grace, a trophy of mercy, a trophy of the love of the Father, but He's made you more in this hour, in this present time, that dash between the two dates on your tombstone, that's your missionary hour. That's your hour of soldiering for the captain of your salvation. That's your hour to fight a good fight. That's your hour to make your king's name great in the earth. That's your hour to call all men in every place to bend their knee to their king, to confess him as Lord and to be saved. You have one life to live. And the Lord Jesus sends you with your precious life out amongst wolves. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. The Lord Jesus did not promise safety. He did not promise security. He did not promise a long life. He did not promise a long retirement. He did not promise many trips to the beach or to the forest or whatever place you like to go to relax. He said, I send you out in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. He sent his followers out into the teeth of wolves, knowing they would suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, for the law of Jesus Christ, for the kingdom of Jesus Christ, for the glory of Jesus Christ, and the redemption of the souls for whom Christ died. He says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of the wolves. That's the context, saints, of the comforting text being offered universally, that God is sovereign that God will not allow us to fall to the ground even as He doesn't allow a sparrow to fall to the ground except by His will. Consider verse 21. Now brother will deliver up brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Again, I say, dear saint, dear Christian, dear brother, dear sister, Christ did not die to give you your best life now. He died to give you eternal life and to enlist you as his gospel soldier now. That you, during that dash between the two dates on your tombstone, that you would labor for his glory in the redemption of sinners. He sends his followers into the the very teeth of wolves. He sends his followers out the door to proclaim his glory and his gospel, knowing that even dear family members would bring persecution, suffering, and death to them. Brother will deliver up brother, father, his child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all 
for my name's sake. You see, the call to repent and believe the gospel is a message the world hates. The call to repent and bend their knee to Christ as king is a message the world hates. The call to repent of their sin, their lust, their lies, their sexual immorality, their fornication, their adultery, their homosexuality, their sodomy, their lesbianism, their bisexuality, all the sexual chaos that's out there. The call to repent of their covetousness, their theft, their greed, their hatred. The call to repent is in direct conflict with their love of self and their love of sin. The call to repent and confess Christ as Lord is in direct conflict with the lordship of self. For men outside of the grace of God, men who are unregenerate serve the Lord of self. They live for the glory of self. So the basic message of Christianity, repent, as the Lord Jesus declared in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. That basic message, while it is good news, but there is salvation in Jesus Christ. There is salvation through repentance and confession of Christ as Lord believing in your heart that God has raised him for the dead. Oh, that is most certainly good news. But first, first, the sinner must come under the weight of his sin. The sinner must, by the grace of God, see his sin as God sees it, hate it as God hates it, and turn from it. And until the grace of God breaks through the darkness of a sinner's soul, they love their sin and they hate righteousness. They love themselves and they serve themselves and they honor and glorify themselves and they hate God and they'll not serve Him. They'll not honor Him and they'll not glorify Him. And so the Lord Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. The Lord Jesus, the embodiment of love, perfect love, perfect wisdom, perfect power, perfect preaching was hated by all. The world cried out against him, crucify him, crucify him. We have no Lord but Caesar. His very first gospel message, the people who heard it took him to a cliff to throw him off to kill him. The Lord Jesus says to his disciples, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. He did not call us to a life of ease, a life of comfort. He did not call us to our best life now. He called us to endure to the end. He called us to go out into the world to face the wolves. He called us to go out into the world to face even family members who would bring hardship and destruction and death, hating us because they hate Christ. They hate His gospel. They hate His command to repent and believe the gospel. They hate the reality of God's holy judgment in hell. They hate the reality that the path to heaven is narrow and there are few that find it. They hate the exclusivity of Christ, that He alone is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by Him, that there's no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved. They hate the exclusivity of Christ. They want the road to be broad. They want to choose their path. But the Lord Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. He who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Should we expect to be treated any differently than our master 
And the Lord Jesus gives the clear answer, no, we should not. Verse 25, it is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more would they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Dear saints, dear brothers, dear sisters, we are called to be Christ's messengers. We are His witnesses. Now, not everyone's a pastor. Not everyone's an evangelist. But every Christian is a messenger for Jesus Christ. Every Christian is a context in which he lives and he is to magnify Christ. He is to declare Christ. He is to bring the gospel light of Jesus Christ into that darkness. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. That's a bold proclamation. That's a bold proclamation of the coming king. That's a bold proclamation of the conquering king. He who has conquered sin, conquered Satan, conquered death, and is coming again to conquer the whole world. Every knee bowing, every tongue confessing him as Lord. What I tell you in the ear, preach on the housetops. Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Brothers and sisters, this context is vital. This context must be received. Hear it again. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear Pilate. Do not fear Herod, the ancient enemies of Christ and his followers. Do not fear the Sanhedrin, the ruling class of Israel that persecuted Christ. Do not fear Saul before he was converted and became Paul. Saul who went with orders arresting Christians and putting them to death. Do not fear Muslims. Do not fear the Roman Catholic persecution of old. Do not fear the radical Hindus of India who often rise up and persecute even unto death their Christian neighbors. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear disease. Now obviously the context here are those who are enemies of Christ, of those who would take the life from your flesh, but certainly disease would fit into that by way of application. Do not fear disease. These enemies of Christ that would seek to kill us as enemies of the cause of Christ, they are killing us with malice. They are killing our brothers and sisters with malice, with thought, with willful intent, with hatred. We are not to fear them, for they cannot kill the soul. Oh, dear saints, if we're not to fear them, how much less should we fear a disease, a mindless disease, a disease that does not come with malice, a disease that does not come with willful intent or hatred, a disease that, yes, can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, we are more than conquerors. For those who are in Christ Jesus, death has lost its sting. For those who are in Christ Jesus, Christ was the first fruits rising from the dead. And our resurrection is a certainty. 
For Christ has conquered death on our behalf. Thus we do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And by application, we don't fear anything that can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But the Lord Jesus doesn't stop there. There is something we are to fear. Fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so the Lord Jesus' counsel is not simply to not fear. It's to not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul and to fear He, God Almighty, who reigns in heaven and over every descendant of Adam on the earth who can kill both body and soul in hell. Oh, saints, we are to fear God alone. And when, by the grace of God, we learn the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1, 7, the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, the fear of God, when we come to that God-given, grace-provided fear of God, we need fear nothing else. For we've come to a knowledge of God Almighty, who reigns over life and death, who reigns over sparrows and the hairs of our head, who reigns over all, including the plague. Then we come to verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Oh, dear friend, if God is not your Father through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, then you must fear. You have every reason to be terrified, for you are one heartbeat, one breath from eternal wrath in hell. If God is not your Father through faith in Jesus Christ, His Son, then whether it be another man taking your life out of malice, or whether it be disease that comes for you in your old age, known as cancer, or disease that comes for you in the next week, known as coronavirus, oh, dear friend, you have every reason to fear because you are about to enter into eternal judgment, literal conscious torment under the wrath of the Almighty forever. But for those who are in Christ For those who, by the grace of God, are genuine disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, all fear is condemned as sin. All fear is to be rejected. For we have learned the fear of God. We have learned the righteous fear of God. And thus we are to put off the fear of death by whatever means it would come. We're to put off fear of persecution, fear of trial, fear of hardship, fear of unknown calamity and fear of all disease, knowing that we are of infinitely more value than sparrows. For Christ, the Lord of glory, God, the eternal Son, took upon Himself the additional nature of mankind that He might come and suffer in our likeness, yet without sin, upon a cruel cross 2,000 years ago. And at His death, He pronounced to Telestai, It is finished. He took upon His righteous soul our unrighteousness and He paid the debt in full 
And when we come to him by the grace of God in faith, his perfect righteousness is imputed unto us and our sin debt is paid in full, having been imputed unto him. This is our hope. This is our confidence. This is our joy. Therefore, verse 31, we do not fear for we're of more value than many sparrows. Verse 32, continuing to look at the context, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Dear saints, the threat of wolves, the threat of brother delivering up brother to death, a father delivering up a child, children rising up against their parents and causing them to be put to death, the threat of being hated by all for Jesus' name's sake is not justification for silence, is not justification for apathy, is not justification for disobedience to the Great Commission, to go therefore and make disciples, to go to all the world and preach repentance in His name. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. May God grant us reception of the Lord Jesus Christ's sobering words. Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Dear friends, if you have a private Christianity, if you have a private faith, I call you to repent of said Christianity and said faith. For the faith that Christ authors is a faith that is willing to boast of Christ. A faith that readily proclaims Christ who has saved us. Who readily proclaims Christ who humbled Himself and came in the likeness of men to suffer and die in our place. How can we not speak of Him who has so loved us? How can we not speak to sinners who are perishing if we claim to love them? How can we not speak to them of He who has so loved us and of He who can save them from the penalty of their sin, which is death and death eternal? You see, dear friends, you see, dear saints, that all of your friends and neighbors are under the curse of death. Death is coming for them. It's coming for them. The plague of sin is coming for them. At an hour you do not know, but it's coming. Will we not love our Lord and make His gospel great, His name great in the earth? Will we not love our neighbor and call them to repentance and faith in Christ? Will we not offer them the balm of Gilead? Oh, but there are threats. Oh, But we may suffer. There may be persecution. They may hate us for the cause and name of Jesus. Perhaps even someone would put us to death. These are our futile rebuttals against the words of our Lord. For He says in the context, in the very context of persecution, of wolves, of death, of suffering, He says, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Sobering words, perhaps terrifying words for some. Hear the Lord Jesus Christ today and deal with him. He continues, verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. There is a delusion in the body of Christ today. A delusion. 
that started with a tract some years ago, perhaps, or certainly was fostered by that tract that said God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Oh, dear saints, He does have a wonderful plan for your life. But there will be suffering. There will be hardship. There will be tragedy. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. We call this thing in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, the Great Commission. It is a commission. It's the commission for the Lord's army. Our Lord, our King, the captain of our salvation, our general says this, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. He's the supreme authority. He's the master and commander. And he says this, go therefore. He sends his army forth. Go therefore and make disciples. Go therefore and call every man in every place to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come, says verse 35, to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his own son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Hear the words of your Lord, dear Christian. Again, verse 38. He who does not take up his cross, die to self. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ. The context of not one sparrow falling to the ground apart from our Father's will. The context of the very hairs of our heads all being numbered. The context of those comforting words, do not fear therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. This is the Christianity that Christ came to establish in the earth. This is what Christ has enlisted us for. Pastor Jeff Chang, an associate pastor at Henson Baptist Church in Portland, Oregon, wrote an article titled, Five Lessons from Spurgeon's Ministry in a Cholera Outbreak. And it says this, As reports of the coronavirus spread around the world, Pastors and church leaders are discussing how they should respond to the outbreak. Throughout church history, many pastors have had to think through similar challenges. As a young village preacher, Charles Spurgeon admired the Puritan ministers who stayed behind to care for the sick and dying during the Great Plague of London in 1665. Now in the fall of 1854, the newly called pastor of the New Park Street Chapel in London found himself pastoring his congregation amid a major cholera outbreak in the Broad Street neighborhood just across the river. How did Spurgeon respond? First, prioritize local ministry. Spurgeon said this, During that epidemic of cholera, though I had many engagements in the country, I gave them up that I might remain in London to visit the sick and dying. I felt that it was my duty to be on the spot in such time of disease and death and sorrow. 
During the outbreak, Spurgeon recognized his responsibility to be present with those who were sick and dying. This was a time to focus on caring for his church and the community in which he lived. He would not outsource this task to his deacons or other church leaders, but remained in London in order to fulfill his duty. Secondly, adjust as needed, but continue meeting if possible. The neighborhood where Spurgeon's church met was not quarantined, so they were able to continue meeting throughout those months. Spurgeon and his deacons continued to receive new members, pursue inactive members, observe the Lord's Supper, and practice all other normal activities of a church. Not only that, but in retrospect, it was particularly during this time when the news of death raged all around the city that Spurgeon found Londoners most receptive to the gospel. Spurgeon said this, quote, If there ever be a time when the mind is sensitive, it is when death is abroad. I recollect when first I came to London how anxiously people listened to the gospel, for the cholera was raging terribly. There was little scoffing then, unquote. In other words, not only did Spurgeon gather his church amid the outbreak, but he saw in these gatherings a powerful opportunity for the gospel and proclaimed the gospel boldly. Pastors need to exercise wisdom when it comes to gathering as a church, especially when the health and lives of people are at stake. Third, visit the sick. As the pastor, Spurgeon not only continued to gather his church, but he also made himself available throughout the week, working tirelessly to visit the sick and grief-stricken. Spurgeon says, In the year 1854, when I had scarcely been in London 12 months, the neighborhood in which I labored was visited by Asiatic cholera, and my congregation suffered from its inroads. Family after family summoned me to the bedside of the smitten, and almost every day I was called to visit the grave." In these visits, Spurgeon prayed with the sick and grieving and pointed them to the hope of the gospel. But more than just bringing gospel content, his presence communicated something of God's comfort to his people. Though these visits were often fearful and full of grief, there was also glorious occasions of faith and joy. Spurgeon says again, I went home and was soon called away again, that time to see a young woman. She also was in the last extremity, but it was a fair, fair sight. She was singing, though she knew she was dying. And talking to those around about her, telling her brothers and sisters to follow her to heaven, bidding goodbye to her father, and all the while smiling as if it had been her marriage day. She was happy and blessed. Fourth, Be open to new evangelistic opportunities. Spurgeon did not limit himself to merely visiting members of his congregation, but was willing to visit persons of all ranks and religions. Spurgeon says again, quote, All day and sometimes all night long I went about from house to house and saw men and women dying, and oh, how glad they were to see my face when many were afraid to enter their houses lest they should catch the deadly disease. We who had no fear about such things found ourselves most gladly listened to when we spoke of Christ and things divine. On one occasion, at three in the morning, Spurgeon was summoned to visit a dying man. Surprisingly, this was not a Christian, but someone who had opposed him. Spurgeon says, That man in his lifetime had been wont to jeer at me. In strong language, he had often denounced me as a hypocrite. Yet he was no sooner smitten by the darts of death that he sought my presence and counsel, no doubt feeling in his heart that I was a servant of God, though he did not care to own it with his lips. Spurgeon went right away. But by the time he arrived, there was little he could do. 
Spurgeon explains. I stood by his side and spoke to him, but he gave me no answer. I spoke again, but the only consciousness he had was a foreboding of terror, mingled with stupor of approaching death. Soon even that was gone. For sense had fled, and I stood there a few minutes, sighing with the poor woman who had watched over him, and altogether hopeless about his soul. Dear friends, the men and women around us are dying. They're all dying. They're all under the curse of death. Let our cholera outbreak, let our plague, let our coronavirus awaken us to the need of the perishing. And may we never be the same. May we never look at our neighbors the same again. They're under the curse of death. Unless by the grace of God they come to faith in Christ, they will most certainly be damned. God's Word says faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. God's Word says how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? The article continues, Not every evangelistic opportunity will result in dramatic conversions, but during times of disease, surprising opportunities may arise. Therefore, take advantage of any opportunities you might have to preach the gospel to those who are suffering. Fifth, entrust your life to God. As Spurgeon gave himself up to his pastoral work, he soon found himself physically and mentally exhausted. Not only that, but he began to fear for his own safety. Yet amid his fears, he learned to entrust himself to God and to his faithfulness. Spurgeon explains, At first I gave myself up with youthful ardor to the visitation of the sick and was sent from all corners of the district by persons of all ranks and religions. But soon I became weary in body and sick at heart. My friends seemed falling one by one, and I felt or fancied that I was sickening like those around me. A little more work and weeping would have laid me low amongst the rest. I felt that my burden was heavier than I could bear, and I was ready to sink under it. I was returning mournfully home from a funeral, when as God would have it, my curiosity led me to read a paper which was wafered up in a shoemaker's window in the Great Dover Road. It did not look like a trade announcement, nor was it, for it bore in good, bold handwriting these words, Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling." The effect upon my heart was immediate. Faith appropriated the passage as her own. I felt secure, refreshed, girt with immortality. I went on with my visitation of the dying in a calm and peaceful spirit. I felt no fear of evil, and I suffered no harm. The providence which moved the tradesman to place those verses in his window, I gratefully acknowledge. And in the remembrance of its marvelous power, I adore the Lord my God, unquote. Here Spurgeon does not promise that no Christian will ever die of sickness. Rather, the Christian needs not dread sickness, for he has nothing to lose but everything to gain by death. As we entrust our lives to God and faithfully carry out our responsibilities, we have an opportunity to demonstrate what hope and peace look like in the midst of death. The article concludes with these words. 
In many ways, Spurgeon's example during the cholera outbreak of 1854 follows the pattern of normal pastoral ministry on every occasion. Pastors are to be present with their people, lead in the gatherings of the church, care for those who are suffering, be faithful in evangelism, and continue trusting in God through it all. The main difference is that during an outbreak, there's a heightened reality of suffering and death. Therefore, the work becomes more intense and urgent, and the opportunities for the gospel multiply. As pastors and church leaders consider their response to the coronavirus in our present day, there's much to figure out practically and logistically, but the core of our ministry remains preach the gospel. The main thing is still the main thing in the midst of plague. Speaking in 1866, amid yet another cholera outbreak, Spurgeon gave this charge to pastors and all Christians, quote, and now again is the minister's time. Now is the time for all of you who love souls. You may see men more alarmed than they are already. And if they should be, mind that you avail yourselves of the opportunity of doing them good. You have the balm of Gilead. When their wounds smart, pour it in. You know of him who died to save. Tell them of him. Lift high the cross before their eyes. Tell them that God became man and that man might be lifted to God. Tell them of Calvary and its groans and cries and sweat of blood. Tell them of Jesus hanging on the cross to save sinners. Tell them that there is life for a look at the crucified one. Tell them that he is able to save to the uttermost all them that come unto God by him. Tell them that he is able to save even at the eleventh hour and to say to the dying thief, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Dear brothers, dear sisters, the main thing is still the main thing in the midst of plague. May God grant us faith. May God grant us endurance. May God grant us voice that we in the circle of our influence, that we amongst our family and friends, that we amongst a people that are dying, a people that are living under the fear of death and the curse of death, that we might make the name and the gospel of Jesus Christ great in the earth. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Philippians 1.21 For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. May God grant that we would hold fast to our Christianity, that we would hold fast to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we would hold fast to His mission to seek and to save the lost in this hour of plague, may we be a people who evidence the victory that we have over sin, over Satan, over death, and over disease. In closing, I ask 
and answer once again, how should a Christian respond to COVID-19? How should a Christian respond to coronavirus? Pray, read your Bible, do a reasonable amount of research on the virus, subjugate all your research findings and all rumors and news reports, especially those you get from the internet beneath the truth of God's word. Trust God who holds the entire cosmos and all life in it, every sparrow in your precious life in his hands. Take responsible precautions according to your own understanding, circumstances, health, and conscience. Don't ridicule or anathematize people because they're more or less cautious than you are. Love your neighbors with action and truth. Remember, non-believers have every reason to be terrified. They are one heartbeat from eternity in hell. Proclaim the certain hope of the gospel. Use words, use tracts, use amplification if possible. Believe Jesus, obey Jesus, witness like Jesus. The main thing is still the main thing in the midst of plague. Father, we do ask in this hour that you might grant us increased faith, increased hope, and increased love. We ask, Father, that your word would dwell in us richly. We ask, Father, that we would live and die as people who know that they have been granted victory over death. We ask, Father, that we would live as a people who fear you alone and do not fear death or any of its causes, whether it be man-made or whether it be disease. We ask, Father, that you would set us free from love of self, free that we might, through the power of your Spirit, bear the fruit of the Spirit, love unto you, Lord, and unto our neighbor as ourself. We ask, Father, that you would grant us lungs to proclaim the Lord Jesus, to proclaim his gospel, that, Father, love would move us to open our mouths and use our lungs to make the name of your Son and the gospel of your Son great in the earth. We ask, Father, in the midst of the darkness of this plague, that the light of Jesus Christ would shine forth, that he would be magnified and a multitude of sinners drawn unto him and made saints washed in the blood of the Lamb. And we pray all this in the mighty name, the name of our King, the name of our Lord, the name of our sweet Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.